I'm as confused as anyone about what anything is, you know, and I'm open to pretty much any explanation. And so there's something that happens in the writing that isn't just my intelligence, you know what I mean? That isn't just my knowing or my ego. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. This episode of Thresholds is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film by iconic directors or emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime and anywhere. The selection is really so incredibly good, from modern classics like First Cow and Nomadland to 1960s masterpieces from Japan and France and Brazil, Norway. I'm always discovering something new and wonderful there. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash thresholds. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash thresholds for a whole month of great cinema for free. Kaveh Akbar is a poet and the author of two collections of poetry, including Calling a Wolf a Wolf and his most recent Pilgrim Bell, which is out August 3rd. He's also the poetry editor of The Nation. His poems have been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Paris Review, Best American Poetry. And he came to talk about the process of getting sober and using poetry to help him save his own life. He also talks about why he thought of calling his most recent collection, Pilgrim Bell, God. Hope you enjoy. I was 24. I was actually young. Um, I, was something of a, I was something of a prodigy of debauchery. I, uh, I really, I, I had, um, within a month of having my first drink of trying alcohol for the first time, I had also tried heroin for the first time. And it was just off to the races at that point. You know, I was, it never really slowed down until it all stopped completely. Um, and, and yeah, I was, I was 24. So if I don't, screw up between now and July 12th. I'm not sure when this is coming out. Maybe it already is July 12th when people are listening to this. But um, but if I don't screw up between now and then, uh, it will be eight years. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell me about, like, I don't know, the months or the year leading up to your decision to get sober? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, my first book uh, was largely an addiction recovery narrative, so none of this stuff is like I, I feel like I've right. I've um, pretty like I'm not super shy about talking about this stuff, being as how I sort of wrote a book about it and thrust it into the world. But um, yeah, I uh, I was living on a mattress in a house that got burgled and robbed all the time because I sold drugs. And, uh, and I just had like a pile of clothes and a mattress on the floor to my name. And I had, um, you know, I had broken several bones. I'd shattered my pelvis. I'd had run-ins with law enforcement and various degrees of severity. Um, but when I actually ended up sort of lurching towards help, um, it was kind of a day like any other, you know, but none of those things, you know, none of those things, none of the things that seem superficially or externally like they should be bottoms um, were the things that actually got me to sort of crawl my way towards help. And I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, to this day, I don't exactly know what it was that did that, that catalyzed that motion, you know, when I did crawl my way towards help. It was slow and clumsy and um, imperfect, but um, 
I hung around and the people around me were really, really graceful, um, literally like full of grace. I think about grace a lot. This is something that I have spoken with less transcendent American prose writer, Leslie Jameson, uh, who is a mutual mm -hmm. friend of ours. Um, uh, we've talked about this idea of grace a lot and the idea of grace, the inherent quality of grace that differentiates it from things like propriety or kindness being that grace is unearned, right? Like, like if right. you are the beneficiary of grace, it means that, um, you know, if, if you've earned it, it's something else. It's like, it's propriety or it's kindness or it's justice. Right. But, but to show grace to somebody, I feel like that means that that's a person who can do you no good or who has done you no good. Right. And I was the beneficiary of so much grace from so many people for whom, to whom I could do no good. Um, and, uh, and yeah, um, I, um, I found, you know, I, I was suddenly, you know, not to, not to put too fine a point on it, but I was very much at this sort of threshold at this sort of Rubicon. Um, uh, and on the other side of it was this, amazing life where I get to be a, where I get to be a poet, but I was just trying not to die. You know, I mean, I was, I was very unhyperbolically trying not to die. I found out a year into my sobriety. Um, I got a physical for this job that I was trying to get at the time. And, uh, and I found out that my liver a year sober was still pre-serotic, which I didn't even know it was pre-serotic know a year prior when i got sober but the liver is one of those weird organs that can kind of heal itself like a lizard's tail um which is to say that a year prior um at, you know when when it showed up as pre-serotic at that physical this was after a year of healing um which is to say that a year prior um it very likely was at some kind of rubicon um across which there would be no return wow. you know and so not to not to be too dramatic about it right but um you know figuring out what the source of that awareness was um that sort of brought me to my knees and in so doing allowed me to crawl to help um whether it is you know there are sorts of biological intelligences right when you hear about um say like a woman who is uh deficient in iron will sometimes crave dirt right this has like been documented right or 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 like a pregnant woman who is um deficient in iron uh uh will sometimes crave dirt because there's iron in the dirt and it's not because there's like a conscious awareness but it's because there's like a kind of like biological intelligence um that there exists iron and dirt and there are other you know um soap eating um, or, you know, there are these different kinds of biological intelligences. And so it may be that um, something sounded through my dense sort of narcotic fugue to say, like, if you don't fix this now, you're not going to be able to later. Um, or, you know, it could be a, could be a core, it could be a more sort of metaphysical cosmological thing. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, I mean, sometimes, Hebe's people, people's GBs when I talk about that sort of thing. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is that I'll never know, you know, um, I'll never know which side of it it's on, but, uh, but it's really interesting to me. Yeah. What, if it's okay to ask, what were the first days and weeks of sobriety like for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for holding this with, uh, with care and generosity, um, Jordan, I know that it's not, uh, it's sort of a weird thing to be talking about with a relative, you know, it's, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time together corporeally, um, uh, <laughs> or at all, you know, and so, um, but I appreciate you holding this with, uh, with care and grace. Um, it's useful to talk about it both, um, both for me and, um, you know, it was other people talking about this sort of stuff that made me realize that it was possible, um, to live another way. But, um, yeah, uh, the first days of sobriety were totally white knuckling, um, just trying, like literally trying not to 
you know, accidentally kill myself, um, which is a intense thing to say, but I mean, it's, it's literally true. Like I couldn't sleep at all. Um, uh, you know, the, the walls were all walling, the towels were all toweling, you know, like, uh, um, I was, uh, if, when you say hallucinating, people are like, Oh, so you saw like a pink elephant riding a circus ball or whatever, you know, and that's not, but you know, it was like things, things were moving that weren't moving, you know? And, um, and it was just like a really sort of, um, ginger tender time, uh, going through physical withdrawals. Cause I was withdrawing from a lot of other stuff too. It wasn't just alcohol. Alcohol was sort of my drug of choice, but, um, in any given moment I was on a whole, um, bouquet of different narcotics. Um, uh, and so, uh, I went from that, um, when the, uh, when the physical withdrawal symptoms abated a bit, um, I suddenly just had, you know, 18 hours of data fill, right? Like my whole life was predicated on narcotic pursuit, you know, going to meet this guy so I could trade this drug for that drug or, you know, sling this drug for cash. So I could buy that, you know, I had this whole economy set up around my addiction, um, uh, which also involved, you know, working jobs, uh, uh, that I got fired from a lot. Um, at the time. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so I suddenly had 18 hours a day to fill with something else. And so <laughs> my first year of sobriety, uh, I started a website where I, um, just sort of cold called or cold emailed poets and like begged them to talk to me for this website so that I could just like sort of interview my heroes um, that became this website called Dive Dapper, which still exists online. I handed over the reins a few years ago, but I think there are 70 something interviews that I did in the first few years of my sobriety, just so that I would like, literally, like I would, I would, you know, read everybody's bibliography, um, that I talked to, uh, and then talk to them and then transcribe the interviews and then um, you know, code them into the site and then put them out. Um, and we did one interview every two weeks. And so that took a ton of my time in early sobriety, which is what I needed. I just needed something to take up the hours in the day. You know, um, uh, I also, uh, played tournament backgammon for a while. Um, Get I, out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, I, uh, joined, uh, I, I became, <laughs> became like one of the top ranked, uh, players in the state of Indiana at backgammon and I would travel to other states for tournaments for a while. Um, I'm still, I haven't played tournament backgammon in years, but, uh, I'm still pretty good at it. Uh, but you know, it was just something that like chess was like the, the Delta between me and the very best in the world was like way too wide and I would never be able to, you know, traverse it. And so, um, but backgammon was something that like, you know, I could, I could learn much quicker and because of, you know, there's, there are orders of magnitude fewer serious backgammon players in America than there are chess players. And so that was something that I could actually sort of, but I think this is the thing, you know, like Roxanne, uh, gay is like a, is like a really, she's like a really highly ranked Scrabble player. You know, I think there's like a thing where the, like there are a lot of, um, secretly sort of competitive righty people in the world. Um, uh, yeah. And so, um, that took a lot of time, you know, I just read backgammon theory books and, uh, play different scenarios against my computer and go to these, um, go to these, uh, tournaments. Um, yeah, I mean, just truly anything that could like fill my time and then just reading poems and writing poems. I mean, more than anything else was just a physical place to put my body, you know, um, if I was, writing a poem that was two or four or six hours where I didn't have to worry about accidentally killing myself. You know, that was like, you know, maybe a third of the day that I just didn't have to figure out how to fill with something that wouldn't hurt me, you know? And that was like what the utility of poetry was for me for a long time. Um, uh, that's still one of my favorite things that a poem can be is just a place to put yourself. You know, I think that we don't talk enough about that, right? It's just like, uh, or a book, I mean, it doesn't have to be a poem. I've been reading a ton of novels lately. 
Um, and I mean, just like inhaling them. And it's just like, I've just been spending all my time and I've just been traveling a lot, you know, over, over quarantine. I was just like traveling all the time. It sounds corny to talk about like that, but I mean, it's true, right? Like I was corporeally trapped, but I didn't feel as spatially, um, suffocated maybe because of it. Does that make sense? I, I feel like I'm sounding like a, like a, um, reading rainbow episode or something now. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a hard thing to talk about without sounding like reading rainbow, but I yeah. think that that's one of the core things that attracts people who love to read and then love to write to yeah, both of those yeah. things yeah. is the feeling like you can be outside of yourself and bigger than yourself and somewhere else. Um, when you get to, when you're like in, in the poem or in the book. Yeah. The last year has been rough for everybody. People have been dealing with isolation, anxiety, grief, so much more. And even though our circumstances are beginning to shift a little bit, there's still a lot to process. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code THRESHOLDS to get $100 off your first month and to show your support for the show. That's THRESHOLDS and Talkspace.com. The code THRESHOLDS to get $100 off your first month to match with a licensed therapist today and set and achieve your goals. Yeah, and I mean, like, even the most skeptical, I mean, you're a, you're a writer and, you know, I mean, you, you, I'm sure can relate to the phenomenon of just like sitting at the notepad or the notebook or the laptop. I don't, are, are you a, are you a digital writer or a hand pen? Uh, writer? It, it sort of depends, but pen, but then typing is faster. So, yeah, sure, sure, but sure. pen, pen is, pen is better for thinking, I think. Totally, me. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to do like, uh, I like to do first drafts with pen, like to do the thinking with the pen, right? And then, um, and then like the first sort of editing happens when I put it into the computer. And then I feel like the computer just makes things look too, like I can write a bad poem in a computer and it'll still kind of look good, you know, like it'll still kind of... Because <laughs> you, you know, sort of typeset it already? Yeah, yeah. There's the, you know, there's like, there's like serifs. It just, it just kind of makes it look like a poem is supposed to look, you know what I mean? Whereas like, if it's like just in my scrawl on like a legal pad or something, you know, the, the words really better be doing the work because the, the legal pad certainly isn't doing it any favors. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is, this is a particularly neurotic digression, but but just to say, like, um, you know, even the most skeptical writers in the world, the most sort of feet on the ground writers in the world talk about the process of writing by using language like, um, oh, you know, the time just flew by, the hours just flew by, or they'll say like such and such a phrase just came to me, right? They'll mine mm -hmm. the language of the supernatural um, to talk about what's happening. Right. Like, and that's, and I'm not the most skeptical anything, you know, I'm, I'm as confused as anyone about what anything is, you know, and I'm open to pretty much any explanation. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's something, there's something that happens in the writing that isn't just my intelligence, you know what I mean? That isn't just my knowing or my ego, right. There's some other thing i mean what's your relationship to that like you're i mean what what do you how do you feel about that do you think it is like just you you synthesizing everything that you've ever thought into like a more cogent and uh and prosaic presentation um it doesn't feel that way to me mm -hmm. a lot of the time and i don't know if the moments when it feels like there's something other than just my intelligence at work and by my intelligence, intelligence, I just mean like my, my mind, not like yeah, my yeah, fast yeah. intelligence. No, sure, sure, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, but so, I don't know if it's that actually my mind is a vast terrain unknown to me, capable of producing things that my conscious mind wouldn't necessarily predict or understand, mm -hmm. or sure. if it is sort of a more... I don't know, cosmic or ephemeral thing that's happening. Um, yeah. But I definitely don't have the experience of like, I sit down to write and I write the things that I planned to write and I knew in advance what they were and how they were going to, you know, like I find writing to be a, a process of 
discernment and of divination. Like things come up in writing that I didn't know that I knew. Yeah, or that you I were about know to say divination. You were about to say yes, divination. Yes, I was. I was. I was about to say divination. Not yeah, to sound too, it. you know, no, like no, no, that. No. You, but you, you were about to say it and then you sprinted away from it. Why'd you sprint away from it? You know, I feel like I don't want to... I'm somebody who often writes about religion or or the spiritual. It's like a big interest of mine and a love mm-hmm. of mine. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I find, Same. yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and one of the things that I find, um, like worrying is the way that sometimes people who write about those things can be dismissed as mm-hmm. like, not, not smart, not logical, not like, you know, like as, as yeah. unintelligent as like people yeah. who are, who have suspended intelligence in favor of the spiritual. And I actually think that both of those things work in tandem, but yeah. I, 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 I often censor my own language when I'm talking yeah. about things like that, because I worry about how I'll be heard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but maybe I, I should just say, fuck it and be like, well, let's, let's just say divination. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I do the same thing. That's why I was interested in it, because I, I sense the simpatico in that moment, um, because I find myself doing the same thing. I may have already done it in this conversation at some point, but um, that reflexive sort of hesitancy to embrace in a rhetorical way the unknowing that we feel and sense in our work, but and maybe even move towards, I don't, I don't mean to be speaking in the first person plural. I don't mean to speak for you, but, um, but the, the, the uncertainty that I'm really trying to court in my work is, is really feels load bearing to me. But for whatever reason, when I have conversations like this, my brain wants to talk about it as if I know anything about what's happening. And, uh, and as if I, you know, have this big sort of grand design, um, that is, sprung from, you know, my, my vast craft knowledge or whatever, you know, um, as opposed to just sort of, um, a fervent, urgent desire to try to sit in uncertainty without groping to resolve it. Um, which I think is what writing actually has to teach me, you know, um, not to, again, not to get to like, about it but like you know like all of the big questions that i have about (laughs) about everything um why i'm here why i survived when so many like me didn't when so many when i made no when i you know i drove drunk a billion trillion times um i drove blackout drunk a billion trillion times um but um you know i never um you know, I never had a, I never had a serious injury, uh, or nor did I ever seriously injure anyone. Right. Whereas other people may have only ever done that once or twice and like forever indelibly changed the trajectory of their lives. Right. And so like, why am I here? And, um, what does it mean that I'm here and to what do I owe that being here? And what do, what, it, what does that imply is incumbent upon me now? And, um, and I'm never going to be able to answer any of those questions. You know, um, I, I will never have clarity about any of those things. Um, uh, and I think that, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm really interested in that uncertainty. I also, you know, also not for nothing, you know, I think that, you know, irony is the sort of default posture of the public intellectual or the writer or whatever you want to call it. And, um, I mean, other people have written about this more cogently than I will be able to sort of clumsily um, waltz around. But I think that irony is a position that is only possible if you are used to sort of being on the top of a hegemonic power structure. And if you are used to sort of, if you are able to sort of laugh at yourself, it's because you don't expect everyone else's laughing at you or you don't expect everyone else is condescending to you right um it's it's almost Mm -hmm. as if to say like you know oh these these vast riches or whatever you know are meaningless to me um and uh and you should actually discount them or it's like that sort of self-effacing thing that you know the the powerful might do and i think it's a i think it's a i think it's a 
not which I'm not saying irony is unique to America, but I am saying that um, the skepticism of uh, of earnestness, and I mean, I, and I mean like actual earnestness. There's like the earnestness that passes for earnestness on Twitter, which is the sort of tactical exchange of non-secret secrets, you know, that or or like or like um, or like takes that inhabit the carapace of revolutionary rhetoric, but that actually no one would ever disagree with, you know? Um, and there's that sort of earnestness. And then there's like the actual earnestness that is sort of disarming and, uh, and also distrusted, um, in, uh, literary circles or in academic circles or whatever. Um, and whereas like, I, I just went to a CC. Um, a couple days ago, uh, and visited um, the Basilica of St. Francis, right? And there were pilgrims there who had traveled so far to visit this temple where, you know, St. Francis is one of the like main dudes in Catholicism, uh, which, you know, I'm not any flavor of Catholic or Christian, but I can still be moved by, a, you know, an ancient basilica. Um, and people had traveled a great length to be really, really seriously contemplative and unselfconsciously contemplative. And I was so humbled by the lack of self-consciousness of their serious meditation, you know, um, like there was no regard for like, if any, that, that thing that I do, you know, where I want to say, um, I wanted to call this, <laughs> I'm like just getting really real. Um, I wanted to call this book, God, Pilgrim Belt. Uh, I Whoa. was going to call it. <laughs> yeah, I just that would have been like, such a bold thing to do. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I and I really wanted to, um, I, uh, I, first, I mean, I just love like sort of monolithic monosyllable titles like crush and please and um, split by Kathy Lynn Che. You know, um, these are some of my favorite poetry book titles, you know, Jericho's book and Jusikin's book. Um, and I've just, I've just always really loved that monolithic monosyllable. And since so much of this book, this new book orbits, um, spiritual yearning and God, which, you know, when I say God, I mean, I, I'm, I'm gesturing up towards the sky right now with waving arms. You can't see, but that's what I mean <laughs> when I say the word, you know, it's like a, it's like a tidy little monosyllable that means like, you know, the, the, my grandmother's and justice and poetry and my cats and the bearded man in heaven who gets mad when I lie. Um, and you know, it, it means all of those things at different times and sometimes all at once to me. And I'm not offended by calling it God. You can call it whatever, you can call it the universe or cosmos. Uh, but, um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the book is sort of orbiting, um, just thinking about the vertigo of that thought. And, uh, and just as if I had written a book about like horses and called it horses, um, I thought it would be a good title to call this book God, but everyone, no, nobody liked that. <laughs> nobody liked that title except for me. Um, and so, uh, but I, I like Pilgrim, Pilgrim Bell has grown on me, but, um, but just to say, uh, it's an example of like that thing, right? Of like beginning to say divination and then being like, well, I wouldn't want people to get the wrong idea, you know? Um, but it, but it's the right idea. Like that's actually the idea that I want people to have. go back though to something you said that I really loved about how um in writing you get to engage all of the things that you uh, uncertainty like getting to mm -hmm. sit in the uncertainty um of all the questions that you know you'll never have answers to but they're still questions that you want to engage mm -hmm. and I wanted to know if if um uncertainty is something that you find particularly difficult like, are you a writer because that's a hard thing for you and writing is part mm -hmm. of your spiritual practice of, of like learning? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful question. Um, I think that lyric poetry, especially for me, seems to be about this kind of orbital movement of language, right? Which is to say, um, language that instead of passing directly through its aboutness, um, sort of circles it without ever moving directly through, which, uh, the poet Alan Grossman said that, um, a poem is about a thing the way a cat is about a house. Uh, and I've always, <laughs> I've always kind of, isn't that great? I've always kind of loved that. Um, but you know, if I was writing a poem, um, about, uh, my grandfather, um, and my, you know, my grief that my grandfather has passed. Um, and I said, you know, the last, the last memory I have of my grandfather was when I was two years old and walking with him in his garden and helping him water his tomatoes. And now he's dead. And it's so dreary him being dead, you know, isn't it sad that he's dead? Bear witness to my gloom. Um, that's, that's like one way of writing a poem. That's like very, very, like an arrow shot through the aboutness, right? Like it's super, super linear, like directly about the thing. Right. Um, whereas I think that most poems tend to move more like, uh, the last memory I have of my grandfather is when I was two years old and helping him water tomatoes in his garden. And, uh, and last night, I went on a Tinder date with this hedge fund manager who wouldn't stop talking about the Brooklyn Nets and it was insufferable and he ordered uh tomato soup and I started bawling right there at the table and I couldn't I was sobbing too hard to explain why right like like that that's a much more <laughs> I'm sorry for like the like sort of impromptu you know I I'm, mean I'm sure that hopefully you understand what I'm getting at but like the it moves more orbitally right it's not like bear witness to my gloom about my grandfather. It's about the thing sort of like inflecting um, the living. I like the, I like your, I like the descriptor orbital too, that it's trying <laughs> to move around. I, I just also just always love space, space metaphors, spatial metaphors <laughs> yeah. and space metaphors. Yeah. Um, when talking about writing, that's kind of how my brain defaults as well. Um, yeah. But I like the way that that's like, it's, it implies that you're moving around a thing, not to circumvent it, but because you're pulled by it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And there's like this gravitational force of the thing. And when you stray too far from it, it pulls you back in. And um, there's this kind of centripetal movement implied by it. Um, I mean, you, you do, you do nonfiction. Uh, how does, I, I feel like a lot of contemporary nonfiction and I, I, you know, you would be more interesting to speak to this than me but i feel like a lot of contemporary nonfiction moves this way too right i think so some of the the contemporary nonfiction that i find like the most exciting and inspiring does the same and yeah mm -hmm. i i definitely find that metaphor apt for thinking about the way that it feels when i write too it's often writing feels like circling mm -hmm. a, a gravitational center often though I don't always know what the thing is that I'm circling. I just know totally. it because I can feel I'm being pulled. Um, yeah. And then hopefully eventually by the end, I can see what the thing is, I've, what, what my planet is. Um, but but it's, it's about being like drawn by that pull and just trying to follow it um, rather than not to beat this metaphor to death, but like <laughs> go straight through it, go linearly through it, which, which yeah. would just uh, ruin it. Yeah, totally, totally. I and I and I it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about discovery, right? And um and that orbital movement leads you to places that you wouldn't go if you were sort of just like plotting a linear movement through a thing, right? That linear movement is what we use when we um, you know, are sort of cold calling people uh to you know on behalf of to get to turn out the vote or when we're you know doing brochures or you know what i mean like that's that's the sort of um you know like rhetorical appeals where that sort of thinking is useful but i feel like in any sort of interesting literary writing we want to we want to feel like we're being present with that we want to feel present to that experience of 
creationing, creation, creationing, Jesus, creation or, <laughs> <laughs> or discovery happening, right? Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. I'm sure I know that there are people who can walk into a, th- a thing of the process of making a thing and already know how it's going to go and what's going to happen at the end of mm-hmm. it. But I just cannot imagine wanting to bother if you knew what was going to, if you knew what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that those people are like journalists, right. Or, uh, or, um, or again, like persuasive writers and whatever, you know, persuasive writers in whatever form. Sure. That also, makes sense. I also think that, um, you know, when we're talking about, when we're talking about, um, writing around, um, the unknowable, uh, it, there's sort of like a parallel thread between that and writing about ethics or writing about like what it means to be good in America in 2021, where we're all kind of fucked and there's no ethical consumption under late capitalism. And we're all sort of compromised and subject to the sort of corrosive moral influence of empire. Right. And I think a lot of people are writing really interestingly around how to navigate that. Um, And a lot of people are really tearing themselves apart around these ideas. And, um, and, you know, I mean, I think that the goodness towards which we are moving is horizontal. Um, you know, you march towards it forever and you never actually get there like the horizon, you know, um, and it's the movement that keeps us good. Um, but I also think that because it is a movement, it is, uh, it is like an ongoing process and not a destination that it makes the destination unknowable as the horizon is sort of unknowable or unchartable, right? And so I think that the inquiry along the lines of thinking around unknowability um, and sitting in uncertainty also makes me more able to um, sit in that sort of horizontal process of like learning to move through the world without harming it. Um, and getting like a little bit better at that every day or trying to get a little bit better at that every day. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's interesting. Also, a lot of the language you just used to me rings a bell in my ear because it sounds similar to language I've heard other people use about sobriety, that Mm. it's, it's a horizontal um, Mm -hmm. thing that you're constantly moving within and toward Mm -hmm. and never quite arrived. And that becoming okay with that is, um, is part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, you know, I had never put, I guess, a, that, um, I never sort of so directly correlated one with the other, but you're right. You know, um, I think that thinking deeply about sobriety as an ongoing daily process and not as like, Oh, I'm sober, you know, what's the next thing, you know, but as, as an ongoing process that will continue for, um, you know, until it doesn't continue one way or the other, um, uh, has allowed me again, yeah, to sit in the idea of asymptotic practice, right? Like, like practice that approaches, um, a limit without ever actually arriving at it. Right. Um, you know, I, I am no less an addict today than I was eight years ago. Um, I just have better, better coping mechanisms, right? And a lot of the obsessions and compulsivities have sort of sublimated into other obsessions and compulsivities, most of these ones today orbiting writing and reading and, um, and which are a little bit easier on my liver. Hopefully, hopefully a lot easier though <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah it's hard it's yeah. hard sometimes writing feels manifestly bad for for my body so we'll see oh totally totally yeah my um uh an elder in recovery uh always used to say quit things in the order they're killing you right um so like i <laughs> <laughs> so like i you know when i got sober i still i kept smoking for a long time afterwards and i was a pack a half pack and a half a day smoker and uh, and eventually I was able to quit that too, right? And the writing, you know, insofar as it's 
you know, I, I, I will, it will certainly cause me to lose sleep. You know, it will certainly cause me to neglect other, um, elements that might be more directly related to my health. But in terms of like quitting things in the order they're killing me, I think I have a lot of other things that I can pay attention to before I turn to the writing. How did the practice of sobriety, and we were already sort of touching on this, um, how did the practice of sobriety teach you the practice of writing, or did it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the most direct and honest way is just that it gave me time, right? It gave me, you know, when I was still drinking and using, you know, I drank about being a writer. I didn't really write, you know, I told people that I was a writer. Um, and I, uh, but I didn't really write. Um, and when I got sober, I threw away everything that I'd written prior to getting sober. It was all sort of this bad stand up, you know, um, it's like sort of like <laughs> just bad stand up routines. I don't know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, in yeah that's i mean, i i, I want to say that's the biggest thing i mean i think that everyone's fear when they start to think about goodness or what you know in whatever form that takes in your life for me it meant you know getting sober and then also beginning to think about um what role I might be playing in the universe and how to maybe make that more useful for non-me people. Um, and I think that everyone fears that, you know, they're going to receive some sort of St. Francis version of that, which is like, you know, sell everything that you own and, um, and live in a monastery or, you know, like that, that is the only sort of logical end to, uh, to goodness, right? To be truly rigorously good, one would sort of denounce all worldly, so on and so forth, and just sort of, you know, live with their mule on a hill or something. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, is not without its charm. Uh, but then you but, have to find a mule, yeah, you have to find a yeah, hill. Yeah. It's a lot yeah, to it. It's a lot to it. A lot to it. Um, but I, I think that. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm a better, I'm a better husband when I'm writing and when I'm thinking about this stuff, I'm a better friend and I'm a better, um, fellow in recovery, uh, to the, to the newcomers with whom I work and I'm a better son and a better uncle and a better teacher. I mean, it just, the more engaged I am in thinking about this stuff, the, I, I can feel it, you know, like my spouse can tell like when I haven't been, when I've been neglecting this work. Right. Um, and by this work, I mean, all of it, right. The, the, the poems were such a big part of my sobriety process, especially early on, like just literally, right. Like, like, you know, a piece of driftwood to which I was, desperately clinging to um after the ship sank <laughs> you talk about avoiding facile <laughs> metaphors and, uh, i'm talking about the ship sinking but um but uh you know it was it was just literally like this thing to which i was clinging and now you know i have a little bit more time under my belt and um and i'm able to look a little bit past my own sort of all-encompassing psychopathologies, you know? Um, and I think that that's the difference between the first book and the second book, you know, is it's just the first book was like me out there on the water. And, um, and this new book feels a little bit more like being washed up on the sand and being like, oh shit, like what now, you know? Um, I don't know. That, that's I don't. I, I'll probably hate that uh, description of it tomorrow. But um, that's how it. That's how it. That's the truth that it seems to me today. Yeah, 
I want to take a second to talk about Pilgrim Bell, the God, the God book. One question I had for you about this book is about the repetition of the Pilgrim Bell. Yeah. And how you came to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for spending time with the book. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I, I haven't talked to a lot of people who have read it yet. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, time is your most irreplenishable resource on this planet. And so I'm grateful oh. to you for giving me some of it. Um, it's, it's so good. Kavi. It's really, really <laughs> so spectacular. It was that. my, it was like my joy to get to spend time with it. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Uh, the pilgrim, I think there are six pilgrim bell poems in the book. Um, I, and they have a sort of funny form. Um, they have this form where they're kind of aggressively punctuated. There are periods uh, where there don't necessarily need to be grammatical periods in the sentence or where um, the enjambment might already be implying a period or, or even more often where the enjambment is implying that there wouldn't be a period, but then there will still be a period at each line break. Um, which, I mean, it does a lot for me, I think, um, not to, not to sound too sort of, um, highfalutin about highfalutin. I, I feel like you can't put a G on polluting. Like, no, cause high... then you're, fo- then you're polluting highly. <laughs> yeah. It's highfalutin, highfalutin. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, that's funny. I never thought about that. You would never say highfalutin. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, not to sound too highfalutin about it, but um, I think that, uh, again, in a book that is so much about me trying to teach myself to sit in uncertainty without trying to resolve it, um, the period is sort of the grammatical demarcation of certainty, right? Um, it is, it is saying like, this is the end of the thought, unit, right? And this is, this is an enclosed unit that follows this like received order of, uh, subject verb object, right? Um, and, uh, and the periods in the, in those poems and the Pilgrim Bell poems, uh, don't denote that, right? They're an attempt to impose that kind of order, that kind of certainty on a poem, but the poem resists them, right? Like a sentence will go on past the period, um, as if the period wasn't there. And in so doing, I think, uh, was a useful little, um, practice for me in thinking about like my own sort of impotent attempts to impose certainty on, or to like name things in my own living that, um, are unnameable or that resist, uh, that kind of demarcation. Um, I also think that, um, you know, the, the book is called Pilgrim Bell. All of those poems are called Pilgrim Bell. Um, and I think about the chiming of the bell as, um, as, you know, the, the bell, like the big church bell or the big bell at the center of the town, right, is a, is a technology that requires the weight of a human body in order to make it sound, right? Like you have to like pull on the rope with your, I'm pantomiming this, you can't see me, but like, uh, <laughs> but you have to pull on the weight of the rope in order to make the bell move and, and you have to make the bell move in order to make the sound. Right. And so, um, it's the, it's the heft of the human body that moves the bell, which is this devotional technology, which strikes me as very poignant, right. The idea of like needing to use this, like weird dying spacesuit that we have, um, in order to apprehend something that is completely not of the body, right? Um, or that does not live in the body. Um, I think that that's really, really trenchant. And so there's something in the, in the chiming of the bell and those periods and the, um, and how the sound of the bell doesn't have like a finite endpoint, right? Like it just sort of chimes until you can't hear it, but someone else might still be able to hear it. Right. And so again, you have the periods trying to impose that order on language that resists it. Um, or the periods trying to say, this is the end of the chime. Um, when the language is saying, no, it isn't. Does this, does this make sense? I feel like I'm rambling now. No, it makes, it makes perfect sense. Um, it made me go and look up 
if a pilgrim bell is a thing because it sounds <laughs> like it would be, you know, like it sounds yeah. like it could be a real artifact in the world. And then yeah. I kind of loved that it wasn't, you know, that I yeah. couldn't find it um, yeah. because it made me think the, then the next image I had was of the body of the pilgrim being the bell and oh, the, yeah. em, the, em, the emptiness of the body of the pilgrim being sort of like struck and resonant. Mm. Um, maybe that's just because you, in the, the, one of the early poems, I think it's the third, um, the poem, The Miracle, talk about what was empty, the, what was empty in the man mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. Gabriel squeezing him away. And like you were just talking about sort of the empty spaces inside yeah. us being um, being resonant, even as they are sort of painful. Um, yeah, totally. It's the emptiness that makes the that makes the sound. I mean, later on in the book, there's a poem uh, called My Father's Accent, where I tell this parable about um, the devil inspecting Adam, and he sort of like gives Adam the up and down and, uh, and then he enters Adam's mouth and passes through all of his body and passes through his guts and emerges out his anus and he's all he emerges and he's all excited. because He's like, uh he's like oh you know man is man is hollow it's all it's all emptiness you know like this is going to be easy like all i have to do is show man something you know these things that he's going to want to fill himself with and and you know and it'll be easy to sort of like persuade him over to my side because he's just going to want to try to fill himself and fill himself his whole life right and i feel like that's that's the story of that's the story of this man you know that's the story of me um you know uh whether whether I've tried to fill myself with um, narcotics or alcohol or poetry or praise or art or money or sex, you know, like, I, like, you know, I, I, there's not a thing on this world that feels good that I haven't made myself sick off of. Um, and, and that emptiness, right? I, I feel like that emptiness, instead of trying to resolve it and fill it and drown it, you know, um, learning to sit with that, right. Is, is my whole, it's the whole journey. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.